0: quite sure what will. Good morning, Westgate Chapel. We're so glad that you're here this morning.
1: Thank you so much for coming and worshiping with us this morning. We have got just a great time of worship that is planned. Especially want to welcome you if you are a guest here today. Thank you so much for joining us and worshiping with us. Uh, Would love for you to take a moment and fill out the connection card that you'll find in the pew in front of you, whether you're a guest or even regular attender. Um, With that connection card, if you're a guest, it is one of the great ways and easiest ways to begin getting connected here at Westgate Chapel. And so we would love for you to take a moment and fill that out. And at the end of the service, you can actually take it out to our guest center in the main entrance and uh, you can hand it in there. We'll exchange it, give you a small gift to say thank you for being here. But our hosts would also love to answer any questions you might have about the church and how to get connected. As well, regular attenders, I'd encourage you as well, fill out that connection card. It's a great way to keep us up to date on your personal information as it changes. But also if you've got any prayer requests or needs that you would like the staff to be praying for, we would love for you to, uh, to write those there and you can turn it in with the offering uh, later in the service. But our team loves the opportunity to consistently be praying for you and the various things that are going on in your life. And so please uh, be sure to take a moment and fill that out this morning. Uh, As well, uh, we've got a lot of things that are going on here around the church. And just a reminder that the easiest way to stay connected at Westgate is to what we call Think App First. We would love for you to always be sure to have the Westgate Chapel app on your phone, handy and ready to see uh, what things are going on around the church. We keep that most up to date uh, with all of the events, times, details that you will need. And so uh, if you have not downloaded that, you can go to Westgate, uh, Westgate Chapel Toledo in your app store and find that app and download it. And again, just a very easy way to stay connected. Uh, A couple of things... We definitely want to make sure that you're aware of, we talked about last week is our Christmas services. Uh, there are three opportunities that you'll have to engage uh, this Christmas season. And especially I want to encourage you, as you think about Christmas services, uh, we would love for you to be thinking about the people that God is continually putting in your circle that you can invite to come along and to be a part so that they can hear the good news of Jesus this Christmas as well. Uh, first, we'll begin with our Christmas Eve services. On December 23rd is our Christmas Christmas Eve Eve service. It's at 7 p.m. Here at the church, we've got an incredible night of worship that is planned, uh, interactive, reflective, and great for everyone, from the young children all the way up to the oldest of us. And so we would love for you to plan on coming and joining us and worshiping with us that evening. Again, that's on the 23rd at 7 p.m. Our second Christmas Eve service will be taking place on the 24th at 4 p.m. And so, uh, again, please be thinking about who you could invite to come and join you to that service as well. Uh, Lastly, we have our Christmas morning services. And uh, the thing uh, that we have done, our team has been putting together for uh, months now, since October, a very special streamed service. What we recognize is that the Christmas season, especially Christmas morning, many people have many different plans with family, uh, whether or not they can be engaged in a service or not. And so we have created an online uh, streaming service for you to engage with. It'll launch at 7 a.m. and can be viewed at any time through. Throughout the day. Very creative. Multiple uh, of our team that will be teaching, very creative worship that is involved. Something that we believe will just be a great opportunity for you to worship and engage, especially as a family uh, and with your family or your friends this Christmas season. But as well, if you want to gather together and worship, the church will be open at 9 a.m. Pastor Randy is going to be here and shepherding that time together uh, here as we uh, worship. And so whether you worship from home or you worship here together, we would love. For For you to come and to join us and to invite people to come as well with that being said uh, again always think our app it'll keep you up to date on what is going on this Christmas season and how you can find ways to get involved with that being said we're going to continue in our worship this morning and we want to do so by taking a moment to look around the room find somebody you haven't said hello to yet this morning go ahead and stand on up and we're going to take a time to greet one another
2: Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be when you're food and water. I will take away sickness from among you. Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's continue to worship him now together.
0: And for all of us now, Lord, not only did you provide hope in sending your son, but you spoke joy into our lives, Lord, joy that could fulfill everything we would ever need that we would ever ask for, Lord. That hope came in that babe, Lord, that we could have salvation provided through Jesus because you gave him not only to this world, but on the cross, Lord, we're just so grateful that we can be together this morning to praise your name. Prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, help us to continue in this worship, especially in this busy season, Lord, remembering why, that you are the reason, you are our hope and our joy, Lord. We love you. I pray that you would bless our morning together, this message and our gifts and our offerings. It's in your name that we pray, amen like to invite you at this time to continue in your worship by passing the offering buckets.
1: the uh you know, how many of you were here with us last night at Christmas on Wilford? Let me see your hands. Yes, sir. It was a great, great time here last night. Uh, If you missed it, I'm sorry. Be sure to put it on your calendar for next year. But uh, man, hundreds of you came out last night for an awesome party where uh, we spent time. We got the opportunity to serve uh, Christmas on Wilford. We uh, had a number of people bringing coats for international students, toys for kids at TNC, canned food for Sylvania area family services, it's so encouraging for me to see how our church just loves to serve other people. And so that was such a great aspect of last night, but as well, we had such a fantastic party. And if you haven't had time to stop by the photo booth and the atrium, be sure to do that uh, later today uh, before you leave. Uh, But one of the things that was probably most encouraging for me was the number of you who were bringing friends that you have been reaching out to, that you are trying to share Jesus with uh we had just a ton of our international students that came out last night as well and so super encouraging uh, to have such a great night where we celebrate Jesus together as a church family thank you uh, for coming but thank you as well to our team who put so much time and effort into creating such a great night yeah it was uh, it was fantastic uh, Christmas on Wilford is quickly becoming a, a great tradition here at uh, Westgate in the Christmas season. And uh, all of us have got uh, Christmas traditions that we enjoy for my family. One of those is uh, to go looking at Christmas lights together. Anybody here do that uh, with your family? You all pile into the car, look at Christmas lights. Maybe a little bit of fighting happens occasionally if you've got kids. But we uh, we go. You'll see some pictures on the screen. These are from uh, the past couple years. Uh, you know, as I'm I'm driving slowly and trying to take a picture out the window of all the cool lights that are out there. And a lot of these are in the neighborhood around Sylvania, uh, uh, or where we live, and uh, it's just a really great time. Uh, there are a couple ones, though, and, and it does amaze me. If you look at this picture that's on the screen, go back one for me. Uh If you look at this picture, it amazes me how much money people will spend on lights just to do something like this. I mean, this house is covered from head to toe in lights, but I love doing it. I'm not quite that crazy, but there are a couple fun things that I love. I love snowmen, uh, and you'll see in this next picture uh, a very large snowman that somebody had out in their yard. One of these days, I'll I'll spend the money on one of those big guys, Uh, but here's one of my favorite, favorite things that we drive by almost every year. This is a mailbox that is out out on the street covered in lights. There are no lights on their house, people. (laughs) They put them all on the mailbox. I thought it was genius. Like, I'm just like, that is the best. I'm hoping one of these years to drive by and see a blow-up, you know, thing sitting on top of it. So, uh, really, really cool. Uh, But my favorite one, this is the one that gets me in the Christmas spirit every year. Merry T-Rexmas. Like, who... Who doesn't want to celebrate Christmas with a T-Rex, right? I mean, seriously, I love, uh, I love this. We actually, the very first year we got here, we drove through this neighborhood and saw this, and it is like destination number one for me every year to go see my, my T-Rex buddy. So uh, we love going and looking at Christmas lights. Now, as I said, I'm not as crazy when it comes to lights. I kind of like to keep it simple, a little classic. You'll see a picture. This is a picture of our house last year. Did a little bit of lights out in the bushes on the tree, you know, little trees in the garden. It was just really fun, and after we set it up, and we enjoyed it. Last year at Christmas, uh, we took off right after uh, uh, I actually left on Christmas Day and flew out to California to spend time with our family that was out there at the time and had a great week together leading up to New Year's. And then we flew home. And when I got home, I was like, oh man, I still got all the Christmas lights up. I got to get those down. So I, I pretty much, we got in the house. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to go start taking them down. And I go and I begin to find that somebody has come while we were out of town and cut the connection point of all of our lights. And I was like, you've got to be kidding. Like the first one I found, I'm like, how did that happen? Those two wires were cut. And then as I kept going, what it seems like they wanted to do was make it so that when we plugged in our lights, nothing would come on. I just didn't turn them on, I was cleaning up. But I found all these lights cut. And so the first thing that I said to myself is, well, one, well, if I find the person that did it, I'm gonna kill him. But, but then I remembered, I'm a pastor, can't do that. So, what's the next thing I did? I got to go to Lowe's and I am buying myself a security system, right? I was like, so I went and I looked at like the ring doorbells, the blink system. I needed cameras. And I went and I bought cameras and I put them up all over the house, pointing in every single direction, keeping it armed at all times this Christmas season. Because if that person comes back, I'm catching them. And then we're going to talk about Jesus together. So, you know, right? What happens when something threatens us in that way, when it looks like something? We we have this like longing, I think, inside of each of us, searching for security from things in this world that might threaten us. And I want you to think about this truth this morning. What types of things threaten our sense of security? We're going through a series together uh, that is entitled All I Want for Christmas. And as we go through this series We talked about last week the fact that there are a number of things that we search for, things that we desire in this life. We talked last week about our search for contentment and how we try to find our sense of contentment in all of the the materialistic things of this world and things of position and of power. And this week, we're going to be talking about this question of our search for security. You know, we can go and we often will try to find our contentment in all of this stuff that we accumulate, one of the things that we often recognize is, is as much as we can get stuff, it always seems to break or somebody is trying to take it from us, and then we have this longing for security. How can we preserve the things in our life that bring us satisfaction? I want you to think this morning, what are the types of things that threaten your sense of security? As I, I'm going to give you a list of things that I thought of this week, but like even as you think in your own life now, everybody's different. What are the things that threaten your sense of security? Take a moment to write a couple of those things down. But I find there's a lot. If someone were to vandalize your property, it would threaten your sense of security. If someone were to break in your home, it would do the same. If someone were to threaten physical harm to you, it threatens your sense of security. Uh, Worldwide pandemics affect our sense of security. Extreme weather events like hurricanes or tornadoes, A rancorous political system in America, high inflation, a declining stock market, Christian values being attacked by our culture, a bad health diagnosis, loss of a job or a potential layoff, unexpected or major expenses, struggling or broken marriages, struggling or broken relationships with friends or family, the loss of a spouse, having to uproot and move your family, wrestling with your own self-image. There are so many different things in this world that seem to threaten our sense of personal security. And what I want you to see this morning is this, is that the core of our search for security in this world is worry and fear that we will lose something that is important to us. That it's that worry and fear that I'm going to lose something that is super important to me that causes us to search for security. Now, I want you to think about what is, what is fear and worry. Uh, if you were to look up in the dictionary a couple of definitions, the definition of fear that you would find is this, that it's a distressing emotion that's aroused by perceived imminent threat. In other words, there's something you perceive that is about to happen, and it causes a sense of fear. I shared a story with you guys probably a number of years ago that uh, when I was a a youth pastor, one of the things I loved to do was take kids on camping trips uh, for, for camps that we did. And we would go to Yosemite in Northern California often. And while we were there, we would camp. And one day in particular, while we were camping, there was a bear that came running through the campground area. And just across from our campsite, this bear runs up. He jumps up on a table. Uh, where there was a small, nice little family sitting, little kids and mom and dad. And he jumps up on the middle of this table and grabs this large bag of Doritos on the table, takes it and runs and runs away with it. Now we're sitting there watching this entire thing take place. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. And so what is the most natural response? Let's go get pictures of this bear, right? So me and this other guy named Bob. I was an intern. I was a little bit younger at the time. Bob was an older guy that was there as a parent and a leader on the trip. He loved photography. We grab our cameras. Remember, not before, this was the day before we had really good cameras on our phones. And then all of the kids were like, hey, take our cameras. So they start piling on me all these disposable cameras. And we're like, okay, we're going to go find this bear and get some pictures. Well, we find this large rock, and we climb up on this rock, and it's probably no further from here to the front pew, and we're sitting up here taking pictures of this bear who has So delicately opened this bag of Doritos and is taking them out, eating them one by one. It's like something you would see in a commercial. I'm not joking. I don't don't make this up. And he's eating and we're kind of snapping pictures. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And then all of a sudden the bear freezes. And Bob says to me, Don't move. And the bear goes from a totally still position and lunges towards us and lets out this growl that I still hear in my nightmares. I mean, I literally, in that moment, every piece of fear that lived in the world surged through my body, thinking, I'm about to be mauled by a bear. Why in the world did I want to have a picture with him, right? And so uh, he lunged, but then he kind of pulls back and went right back to eating his Doritos. Like, you can't, well, you could make it up, I'm not. So, literally goes back to these trails, and Bob's like, okay, we gotta, so we kind of slowly back down this rock and then we kind of a little bit more quickly get away and leave the bear to doing his thing. Moral of that story is stay away from bears, okay? But I experienced in that moment because of the impending danger of a bear lunging at me, incredible fear. What's the difference between that and worry. What is worry? If you were to look in the dictionary, worry is a distressing emotional response to an imprecise or an unknown threat that comes from your mind's interpretation of what could happen. In other words, worry has more to do with not an immediate imminent threat, but our minds telling us something could happen here, and we begin to worry. I think about when Rochelle and I moved our family from California to Ohio. There was so much worry that went in that. The worry of leaving our family behind and our friends. And when we get to Ohio, will we have those friendships and those types of relationships? Worry about our finances, of still owning a home in California, and what's going to happen, and what will that mean for our future? We didn't have answers. It wasn't like there was this immediate imminent threat, but our minds were constantly telling us, this isn't going to work out well. There might be something bad, and so it filled us at times with a sense of worry. That's the difference between fear and worry, the difference between an imminent threat and what our minds tell us, and what we see is that the core of our search for security in this world is fear and worry that we're going to lose something that is important to us. And when we search for security, what we truly are longing for is to be back in a place where we feel safe, where life is in order the way that it was supposed to be. And that the potential to lose something important to us, whether it's real or imagined, uh, it, whether it's real or imagined, is mitigated. But there's a hard truth for us to learn this morning, and it's this, is that nothing is truly secure in a sinful, flawed, and broken world. No matter how hard we try to hold on to our stuff or to live life the way we want and to do it in such a way that we feel complete security, it is impossible living in a sinful, flawed, and broken world. Why? Because sinful people like ourselves will always threaten our sense of security. A world that is in a state of decay and death will always threaten our security. Even our own penchant for making bad decisions will threaten our sense of security. And what we see is all of this goes back to where we talked about last week, the fall of mankind of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with with the Lord. The fall of man, Our sin against God made all of this certain as the curse was placed on the world is that what is certain is that we cannot find security outside of God. But this morning there is an answer and we know that answer and it's simple. The answer is Jesus. But it's the answer that we so struggle to cling to and to reach to when we wrestle with our own personal security. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to really do a case study on the destructiveness of unbridled worry and fear as we search for security in a broken world. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. This will also be up on the screen for you. But I want us to take a look at someone in the Christmas story this morning that oftentimes we read about pretty quickly. It's towards the end of the story. And we quickly pass over without really doing a deep dive and trying to understand what was actually going on during that time period, especially in this individual's life and how is it that God can use it to instruct me. And that person that I want us to to look at, it was a person by the name of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a man who is a really good study for us on the destructiveness of unbridled worry and fear as we try to find security in a broken world. So if you have your Bibles, read with me in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. It says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Keep that in mind. Not only was King Herod disturbed, but it says all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star that they had seen went and it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream... Not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord also appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Talk about an uplifting passage of scripture at Christmas time. What we sit here is we start reading about this guy named Herod the Great, who seems to be this maniacal king, this maniacal leader, who is so caught up in himself that he is fearful of a tiny baby that is born in Bethlehem to a poor family such that, He decides that the only way to save himself from this tiny little baby is to what? Is to go into order that all boys under the age of two in Bethlehem would be killed and slaughtered. What is it that leads a person to be so terrified of losing their life, their sense of security, that they would go and do something this crazy? I want us to take a look at that this morning by taking a little bit of a deeper look at who Herod was. Letter A in your notes. At the time of Jesus' birth, Herod the Great was the ambitious and ruthless ruler of Judea under the hand of Rome. What we see as as we look into the historical record is that Herod the Great himself, at the time of Jesus, was a leader in Judea, And really, Rome had its hand on him. He was basically working within within, uh, Rome itself. And I'll give you a little bit of more detail here in just a moment about how all of that worked. But the first thing that we see is this, Herod's name, he was often referred to as Herod the Great, revealed his ambition to make a name for himself among the world's rulers, If we just jump back to last week's message and talk about our search for contentment for Herod, he found his contentment in all the wrong places. All the things of the world that he could amass for himself, he wanted to find contentment in it. And you can see that as we look at some of the things that he did in his life. One of the things that he did is this, is that we learn from the historical record that Herod the Great enacted policies that would bring incredible economic prosperity to the area of Judea. Uh, One of the things that they said Herod learned is that oftentimes what people would do is when they wanted to build something, they would basically take slave labor and force people to build things that they wanted to have built. Herod had an ingenious idea though. And the idea went like this. What I will do is I will pay workers, not just enslave them. I will pay them to go and to build things for me. And when I pay them and give them money, what are they going to do with that money? they're going to spend it on themselves, on their livelihood. And they're going to go and they're going to pour that money into other farmers, into other merchants, into other people that are going to take that money. And what they're going to do with it is spend it on themselves. Basically, what he did is created a system of a circulation of wealth that would happen within the community. And because of that, it brought incredible economic prosperity by bringing jobs to people that would then take their money and pour it into others. What it also did is it created a greater base for him to have tax money for the kingdom. This circulation of wealth then would bring wealth that would enable him to do even greater things to bring himself more wealth and more power. A second thing that he did in order to bring this economic prosperity is that he opened up international trade to that area. Uh, He was completely reliant. To bring in international trade, You had to have a port. And the only ports that he could get his hands on that time would have charged Rome. Rome is the one who actually owned those ports, but they would charge an incredible amount of money, import duties on things that it would severely affect the wealth that would come in. So what did he do as he gained economic prosperity? Your next bullet. He built the port city of Caesarea. The port city of Caesarea, if you were to go there and see it today, is something incredible to behold. To think that Herod the Great built this himself. It's this beautiful city, you'll see it back here, that sits out on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, he built up this incredible city, but he built a port in it as well. And in this picture, you can see the outline in the ground of how he went out and built one of the largest ports of the day, uh, greater than the port in Alexandria. In egypt greater than any of the ports in greece that rome themselves had um he he went ahead and built this port city himself the greatest of the time on the mediterranean and as we read in the historical record it tells us that caesarea became the gateway to the mediterranean for the highly lucrative spice trade from india it brought incredible wealth into judea Because of this port as well, Israel became one of only two suppliers of raw glass for the entire Roman world. In other words, his control of trade continued to also generate incredible wealth. With all of this wealth, he would continue to build his own kingdom and develop this name of Herod the Great. One of the next things that he built, and again, you can go see this in Israel. I went and saw it when I was there, is an aqueduct. This thing is a marvel to behold to think of how he built this back in in these times. But he basically went And figured out that in order for Caesarea to actually uh, thrive and function, he needed to bring a source of pure, clean water into the city to make it sustainable. And so he built this aqueduct that was basically ran five miles northeast of Caesarea to the foot of Mount Carmel where there were springs, and he channeled the water in this raised aqueduct all the way to the city, providing enough water for 50,000 residents to live within the city. It was an incredible moment marvel of that day. Not only that, he continued to take his resources and his money and pour it into some incredible palaces that he built for himself. One of those, this is a place called Masada. Again, you can go to Masada today and see that it is a palace uh, complex and, and basically city that resides on top of a hill out in the Judean wilderness, kind of on the east side of the Judean wilderness. And there he built, and you can see this in the picture, two palaces into the side of this incredible mountain. And then a city that literally sat on the top. Uh, It was an incredible feat for him to do that. He also, another thing that he did was that he enlarged and updated the temple in Jerusalem. And this was done gaining favor, no doubt, with, with the Jews, It is said that he built the temple complex in Jerusalem to a size and magnificence that it had never enjoyed, even greater than the time of Solomon. The picture you see that's up on the screen is a model that sits in Israel today of the temple mount that sits there of Herod's temple complex. It was an incredible thing to behold in that day and age. Finally, he built another temple or another palace, if you will, uh, called Herodium, Herodium. Herodium was uh, again uh, A huge palace that he built on a hill that was outside of Jerusalem. It was built in a place where he won a battle against a group of Jews. And he basically took a natural hill. And I want you to pause and look at this picture. He took what was a very small natural hill and built it into a much larger one, having people bring tons and tons of dirt, building up very high, and building this incredible palace complex that not only sat at the top of the hill, but came all the way down the sides, resided at the bottom where there there was a, a basically a coliseum. There was uh, many different large pools that were there. He had these gardens. He had these aqueducts that were drawn from springs that were miles away to water the gardens and to fill the pools. and the next picture'll show you in the top, looking down on top of this hill, how he literally built the palace complex down into the top. He resided and his quarters were found in the top center portion. The others on the sides and at the bottom were used for storage or for other places for people to stay, but it was magnificent to behold the things that he did. When you think of Herod, Herod the Great, you should think of a person that had it all. He had all of the wealth from his incredible economic exploits, but also he built for himself this incredible, not just wealth, but a position of power. Truly, he was a person who was finding and looking for his security and his love in the things of this world. His contentment was found in the things of this world. But searching for his contentment in the things of this world, this accumulation of wealth and power caused a problem, number two. And the problem was this, Herod's worry and fear of losing his kingdom. He was so worried about losing his kingdom that it led him down a ruthless and a destructive path of seeking security in all of the wrong places. As he tried to hold on to the things of this world that could never be kept forever, that would always pass away because of the broken world we live in, he lived his life in worry and it caused him to do crazy things that many of us never read about because we don't read the historical record. But let me tell you about a few of those things this morning. He continued to seek his security in wealth and power. He wanted to find his security in wealth and power. He had been the son of a high ranking official in the Hasmonean dynasty. And as part of that, he had been named the governor of Galilee. And when he began to recognize that his power was going to be stripped from him, he ran to Rome and Rome essentially made the decision. The Roman Senate decided that they were going to give him the title of King of the Jews. And they were going to ask him to go back to Judea and to conquer the people that were there. And then he would be the ruler that was set over that area. And so he looked for wealth and for power in order to hold on to the things that he wanted most out of this life. And so the next thing is once he conquered Judea and he began to rule, he set out on a course also of people pleasing. If he could please people, then somehow that would also give him even more security. And so what did he do? He was an Edomite. The Jews did not love the Edomites. And so he thought to himself, the only way that I can gain favor with the Jews and keep them from rioting is that I will marry a Jew. And so what does he do? He, he marries his wife, Mar- uh, I always mess up with her name, Marimani. She was a Hasmonean princess. And then not only did he marry her, but he appointed her brother as the high priest. And doing this, he believed that he would gain favor. And for a time, he did gain favor with the Jews. Another thing he also did to please people was because he has developed so much economic wealth, he reduced taxes twice during his time, thus seeking to gain favor. He continued to enact policies that would bring about economic prosperity because if people had money, they would be happy and they would support you and you would feel secure. But that never lasts and it didn't. And he began to live in constant fear that people were trying to take his kingdom away from him. And as he feared for his own personal security, again, it led him to do crazy things. I showed you two of the fortresses on Masada and then also uh, uh, Herodium that he built for himself. But if you look into the historical record, Herod the Great actually built about 15 palaces for himself all throughout the land in different corners and different pieces of the land. And it's said that Herod was so fearful of losing his power and of people that were out to kill him that he would never stay in one place too long. He would constantly jump from these different palaces in order to make sure that he was safe and secure. He was finding his security in money. He was finding his security in his, in his power. He was finding his security in his palaces and the things that he could do and build for himself but even when that didn't feel like it was enough he went to the next point of murdering anyone that would be a threat to him it led him down a very dark path listen to the historical record of what he would do just to make sure that he could hold on to his kingdom and his stuff He had his wife's brother, Aristobulus, who he had made the high priest. He had him drowned in a swimming pool at his palace during a party because he believed that he could be a threat to his kingdom. He had put to death 46 members of the Sanhedrin because he believed that they were going to try to overthrow his kingdom. He thought that his mother-in-law, there are going to be no mother-in-law jokes with this one. I'm just warning you. He thought that his mother-in-law was out to get him. He had her put to death. He also had his wife murdered along with two of their sons because he considered them to be potential rivals with a legitimate claim to his throne. He was constantly running around killing anyone and everyone that would seem as though they could be a threat to his own personal security. So much so that Augustus Caesar in Rome said this about him. It is better to be Herod's dog than to be one of his children. You were safer as his dog than you were as one of his kids. You know, as I think about Herod and I look at his life, here's a guy that had everything we talked about this last week. Oftentimes we try to find our security and our contentment in this world in stuff. But when we do that, it also leads us down a path where when we think we're going to lose those things, it can lead us to really strange and weird places of trying to make sure that we can keep the things that we desire and find security. Here is a guy that had everything. It seems that he had all the wealth, all the power, but he was so fearful of losing it. And what that would mean, that he would do anything he could at any cost in order to hold on to it. What's interesting is that as we approach the Christmas season, we have two drastically different pictures of two incredibly different kings. But what I want you to see about Herod, letter B, is this. Herod's search for security reveals the fruitless nature of seeking security from a broken world. There was no amount of power there was no amount of wealth, there was no amount of notoriety, and anything that he could do to hold on to the things of this world. What is certain in this life, the hard truth we talked about, is that this world will constantly fail us and leave us in a place longing for security. But you know how bad it got for Herod. Herod, even at the end of his life, experienced what historians refer to as some incredible sickness. And he knew that his time of death was coming. And because his time of death was coming, he wanted to make sure that his legacy somehow would live on. But he knew that he was very unpopular because of the things that he was doing at that time. The way that he would kill people in order, order to hold on to power. And so what did he do as his death was arriving? He knew that not many people would be sad. And so the historical record tells us that he took a very large group of notable people, rounded them together in a colosseum, and he basically ordered his people that at the time of his death, that all of these people, these notable people, should be slaughtered and put to death so that there would be crying at the time of his death so it would at least look like people were upset that Herod had died. How in the world does a person get to that place we read about Herod and we think to ourselves, I got nothing in common with that guy. But there's a really important truth, hard truth that we need to hold on to. And it's this, is that some way, shape or form all of us are Herod. Left to unbridled worry and fear, as we search for security in a broken world, we easily slip into self-destructive ways of seeking for that security that have the potential to do great harm to ourselves, to our relationship with God, and to our relationships with other people. We put our hope in greater materialism and power, hoping that that will secure our security, but it always fails. We put our hope in flawed people that we think hold the power to help us, like political leaders or doctors or any so many other things, and it never quite seems to do what we desire. We even put our hope in ourselves by looking to tear other people down in order to secure our own security in this world, but it always fails. One of the great things that we often do is that we ignore God, and in the process, we bring great destruction to our relationship with him. Maybe we haven't murdered people. Maybe we've not quite gotten down just as far as Herod the Great did. But that doesn't make the damage that is done to us, to our relationship with God, and our relationship with others any less. So this morning, as we consider this truth, I want us to wrestle with this. How then does the Prince of Peace, how does Jesus himself, God, sent in human form into this world, how does the Prince of Peace guide us when it comes to overcoming our worry and our fear, So that we can find the security that we actually long for. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to look together at verses 25 through 33. Again, these will be on the screen for you. But Jesus himself in his earthly ministry speaks to this issue of where it is that we actually find our security in this world. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink, or about your body, or what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry by saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you as well. As we think about how Jesus instructs us even in this passage with how we overcome our worry and fear as we seek to find security in this world, letter A, I believe the most important thing that we can see is that we must never forget who is in control. As we search for security, the one thing that we long for is to be able to control our environment. But much like Herod, we find ourselves in a position that as much as we try in our own strength and our own power to control our environment, we are never able to do so. You know, one of the things that I saw... Uh, years ago during one of our elections, uh, there was an election that was taking place and you know I won't go into who was running at that specific time. Let's try to figure it out. But one of the things that I can remember very clearly is that the Christian church itself was incredibly concerned. People were trying desperately to get people to run out and to vote and so, because the belief was if, if the person that's basically, let's be honest, not the Republican doesn't win, then the world is gonna fall apart. We're going to lose things in our life that we love and that bring us a sense of security in ways that we have never seen in the world before. And there was this incredible amount of fear that was taking place. And I can remember the night that that election actually came to fruition and the non-Republican won the ticket, became the president of the United States. And that evening, I went onto to social media and I was reading what people were posting, specifically Christians within the church. And these are the types of words that I heard. Laments of how the world was going to fall apart. Of how we were all in so much trouble. That everything that we love and that we know is going to be taken from us. And then people in the church began speaking some of the most hateful words that they could. Not only about the person that was president, but people that voted for that president. And can I tell you Something. As I watched this take place, I thought to myself, have we forgotten that the one who is actually in control still sits on the very throne of heaven? Have we forgotten to ourselves that no matter who it is that sits in power as a mere man, as the president of the United States, that God himself still sits on his throne? that he is still in control of all things that happen in this world. And because of that truth, there is nothing that we need to fear. There is nothing that we need to worry because God himself is in control. Matthew chapter 6 verse 25, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. And as he continues through this passage, he reminds people. The people that are listening and he reminds us that the heavenly father is the one who is caring for us. God himself, the creator of all things, who is in control of all things, is the one that cares for us. In Psalm 121 verses 1 through 3, the psalmist says it this way. He says, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. If we are going to find security in the midst of a broken world, then we must remember and never forget the one who is truly in control. If we haven't come to the end of ourselves at this point and recognize that the things of this world will never provide the security that we long for, would we then come to our senses and say, the one who created all things, who has all power, he is still in control, and he is the one that can provide the security that I long for. We must never forget that God himself is in control. But as we search for that security, letter B, we also must recognize our Father's providential care, not just that he is in control, but that his providential care, here's how I would explain that to you. Uh, this morning, I meant to bring a watch with me that was sitting in my drawer, and I completely forgot it as I walked out the door. But I have this watch that was given to me years ago. It was an a angel's watch. You know, I love angel's baseball. Had a little angel's insignia in it, and I loved it. It was old school. It wasn't one of those that, you know, counts your steps and tells you all that weird stuff. Uh, just tells time. But it had all these cool little cogs that were in it that were all connected and would spin and like really cool thing to look at. And behold, the maker of this watch did a beautiful job. And uh, when I got it, I loved one. And I looked at it all the time. But one of the things that I noticed is that over time, which really didn't take very long, is that the watch began to break. The time began to slow down. It wouldn't hold the time very well. Then some of the cogs that were inside began to fall apart. You know, what would have been great, what would have been great is if the watchmaker had actually been there with me to be able to help me in that moment where this thing was falling apart and breaking. Why do I share this analogy with you? Because at times, this is how we view God, consciously or unconsciously. This is one of the reasons that we often struggle with worry and fear. We think to ourselves that somehow God has created everything. He made it really good and beautiful. But then he's left us, and we're here to survive on our own. We may not think that or say that outright, but our thoughts and our actions actually imply it and the way that we act out of fear and worry in this life. What I want us to remember is that God is not like a watchmaker who creates a watch and simply allows it to run on its own and then leaves and allows it to fall apart. The Bible tells us that God is intricately involved in every aspect of his creation. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 says that Christ sustains all things in this world by his very word. Acts chapter 17 verse 25 says that everything is totally in this world dependent upon God that he is the one that literally gives life and breath to all things. The writers of scripture made it abundantly clear that God hasn't just started things and left but that he is intimately involved providentially caring for us at all times. The author uh, when Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 6 what does he say? He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And why do you worry about clothes? See, the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor and spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these, for pagans run after all these things. And yet your heavenly Father knows that you need him. What Jesus was teaching us and telling us and teaching his disciples and all who would listen is that God is providentially involved in our lives and cares deeply for us. The psalmist in Psalm 139 says these words as he thinks about God's providential care. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know that when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely you hem me in behind and before you've laid your hand upon me such knowledge is too wonderful for me it is too lofty for me to attain where can i go from your spirit and where can i flee from your presence if i go to the heavens you're there if i make my bed in the depths you are there if i rise on the wings of the dawn or if i settle on the far side of the sea even there your hand will guide me your right hand will hold me fast if i say surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Surely the darkness is as light to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. What the psalmist understood is just how intricately involved God is in every aspect of our life. Even if we want to run from him, he is providentially caring for us. In 1 Peter 5, 7, it says, cast all of your cares on him, for he cares for you. But as we understand this truth, we have to Remember that God's providential care for us does not mean that he's our genie in a bottle and that we always know what's best for us. It means that God knows what is best for us. His purposes are higher than ours. And he is 100% involved in every aspect of our lives, good, bad, and ugly. What I recognize is that oftentimes when we're walking through a season of worry, fear, or trial, where our security is threatened or taken from us. We have a hard time seeing God's providential care until we actually come out on the other side of it. And many of you have experienced this. What it requires for us to do is to have faith in the moment in God, that he is in control, and that his plans for us are good, so that we can see his loving kindness even in the midst of our worry, our fear, and our trials. I don't know about you, but as I look back on my life and the moments where my own security has felt threatened, whether it's by health issues, financial issues, things that are out of my control. I have walked and looked back through every single one of those experiences and as I have walked through it with God, I had fear and I had worry. But every time I've come to the other side, I have always seen God's loving kindness and his care for me. And using those moments to deepen me, to use me in the lives of other people and to accomplish his perfect purposes. Here's what I want you to catch. The security we long for, if we, long, if we want to find it, we can never forget who's in control. We need to remember God's providential care in our lives, but also let her see, we must remind ourselves of the great value that we hold to God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 26 and 30 say Are you, as it speaks of the birds of the air, not much more valuable than they? Or if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? You see, the greatest proof of God's care for you and your value to him is that God himself became a man. And he allowed himself to come down into this world, to be born as one of us. That even though we have rejected him and sinned against him, that he would live so that he could die to pay the penalty for our sin so we would be restored to him. Is there any greater proof of God's care and his love and to show us that we can trust him? Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. As we long for security, we need to understand that we need to look to the one who is in control of all things. To understand that he cares for us. And that he has proven that care and the value that we have through the sending of his son that we celebrate this Christmas season. And lastly, letter D, because of all this, we must keep our focus on the matters of eternity instead of temporary concerns. Jesus ends this passage by saying, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you as well. What Jesus draws our mind to any time he talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about God's kingdom here and now in the present that we get to participate with God in his kingdom work in this world. But he's also reminding us of a future time where we will reign with God forever in his kingdom. And he calls on us that in the midst of a broken world, where we think to ourselves that maybe the things of this world will bring us the security and the satisfaction that we long for, the place that can only be found is in God. And he has the promise of not a broken things, but the promise that you will reign with him forever in eternity. My hope for us this morning is if we think about the things that we talked about at the very beginning, the types of things that threaten our sense of security, is that we would not find ourselves turning to the things of this world or broken people or our own devices to try to hold on to the things that we love, but that we would have faith in the God who created us in the God that sent his son into the world to prove his love for us. And that because of that, we would keep our mind focused on the things of eternity, knowing that God's plans are perfect for us and that we can trust him. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, as we go through this series together, thinking about the things that we're often looking for, like contentment and finding security. Lord, the things of this world, which we seem to celebrate really well at Christmas, we celebrate, Lord, gifts and materialism and all sorts of different things that have nothing to do with you. And what we often forget is that they will always fail us but that you never will. So I pray this morning, Father, that you would help each of us as we think about the areas where our security feels threatened, maybe even today, maybe even right now, that we would place our sure hope and trust in you, the God who loves us and who is for us. I pray as well, though, for those that are here this morning that don't know you as a personal Lord and Savior, and they're beginning to recognize for the first time that, man, this world that we live in always seems to fail us. It never gives what it promises. I pray that you would lead them in their hearts this morning to you for the very first time, Lord, to put their hope and their trust in you, to know that they can be secure, that their future will be with you for eternity. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Read these words from Psalm 89. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours, and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Herman sing for joy at your name. Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong, your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness. For you are their glory and strength, and by your favor you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Thank you, Father, this morning for the reminder of your great power and your great control over this world and everything that is in it. And the reminder, Father, of the depth of your love for us that is proven through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for showing us, God, that you are a God that we can place our faith in at all times and trust with our very lives. That, Lord, we need not seek security in the things of this world that will pass away, that we can be assured of eternal life with you forever through your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we praise your name this morning, and we confess to you, Father, the times where we struggle to find our security in you, often running to other things, that will not ultimately get us where we long to be, would you teach us, Father, to always turn to you and to find our hope and our security in you. And Father, as we do, would you use our lives, Lord, as a beautiful, beautiful example to this world of who you are and the impact and difference that you will make in our lives when we surrender our hearts to you. We love you, Lord, with all that we are. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Church, thank you for worshiping with us today. If you have any prayer needs, uh, we've got Diana and uh, Chad over here this morning, part of our prayer team that would love to pray with you. Please come see them. If you haven't had a chance to stop by the photo booth, do so before you leave. God bless you. Have a great week worshiping the Lord. We'll see you next time.